When was the last time that you went to the zoo? Anyone been to the zoo recently? A long time ago? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that. Well, as a family, we have been known to enjoy a day at the zoo, haven't we, guys? We love the zoo. We definitely took our opportunities while living in Victoria to visit Melbourne Zoo and Werribee Zoo quite a few times. I especially enjoy the safari bus at Werribee where you drive along in this janky old bus and see all of the animals in their wild habitat, I guess you call it. Um, and I adore seeing the elephants at Melbourne Zoo, which took us a couple of visits before they actually came out to play. And then I probably sat there for far too long, just like, oh, the elephants. Does anyone else have a favourite animal that you like to see at the zoo? What's your favourite one? The monkeys, yes. What ones? Brody, monkeys, yeah. Polar bears, well, you don't get to see them too much, but we did see one at SeaWorld. Although last time we went, he was sleeping and... That was a bit boring, but I suppose that's what they do. They're allowed. Giraffes. They're so big and the way they move, yeah. It is fascinating, isn't it? Now, one of the weirdest animals that I think exists and one that has somehow become quite popular in recent years, I don't know why, kids might be able to share something, is the sloth. Has anyone seen a real sloth before? Yeah? Yeah? They did have them at Adelaide Zoo a long time ago. I don't know if they still have them, but I remember seeing one there. Uh, but, I mean, they're kind of boring, aren't they? <laughs> they? They don't move. They don't seem to do anything. They just are there on a tree. <laughs> In case you're not sure what a sloth looks like, I do have a picture for you that we can put on the screens. Um, they're, they're kind of a bit contradictory, aren't they? They're kind of cute, but also really weird. They kind of look like they're smiling in a way. But I thought I'd look up some fun facts about sloths in the trusty internet because everything on the internet is true and real. And so I'm going to share 10 fun facts about sloths with you today. So number one, without sloths there would be no avocados. The extinct giant ground sloths, I guess around the dinosaur age, were some of the, old, the only mammals that had digestive systems large enough to process the huge avocado seeds whole. So they feasted on the fruit and then dispersed the seeds. We know how. Far and wide, all tree sloths that we see today evolved from the giant ground sloths. They're, and there were, they were thought to be over 80 different types, with the largest reaching over six metres in height. That's a big sloth. There is even evidence to suggest that several different species of marine sloth existed, feeding from seagrass and seaweed in shallow water. Interesting. Number two, sloths are three times stronger than we are. Sloths are the undisputed pull-up world champions. From the moment that they are born, sloths are able to lift their entire body weight upwards with just one arm. Not only that, but sloths have 30% less muscle mass than similar-sized mammals and are over three times stronger than the average human. That's confusing. We have a high, oh, they, sorry, have a highly specialised muscle arrangement that can produce enough strength to withstand the force of a jaguar trying to rip them from the tree. Specialised tendons in the sloth's hands and feet lock into place, allowing them to hang upside down for long periods of time without wasting any energy. This unique locking mechanism is also how sloths are able to sleep while hanging from a tree branch, which is what they do 
all the time. They have been even known to remain suspended upside down after they die. (laughs) What? Number three, they poop a third of their body weight in one go. What? Sloths are famous for their bizarre bathroom habits. They will only relieve themselves once a week and can lose up to a third of their body weight. That sounds like a time-saving thing. Could we... Yeah, anyway. Furthermore, they will only do it on the ground after wiggling around the base of a tree to dig a little hole. That's very nice of them. The weird weekly routine remains one of the biggest mysteries surrounding sloth behaviour. While there are many different theories, the likely explanation is that it's all about communication and reproduction. Interesting. Number four, sloths are blind in bright daylight. They have a very rare condition called rod monochromacy, which means that they completely lack cone cells in their eyes. And as a result, all sloths are colourblind and can only see poorly in dim light and are completely blind in bright daylight. Thankfully, sloths compensate for such poor vision by having a phenomenal sense of smell and a great spatial memory. So their bad eyesight also plays a key role in their slowness. You can't run around in trees if you can't see where you're going. Makes sense. Number five, they are faster in water than on land. I didn't know they went in water. Although they spend most of their time in the trees, sloths are surprisingly good swimmers. They can swim through water three times faster than they can move on the ground. Three-fingered sloths have two more neck vertebrae than any other animal, which allows them to pretty much swivel their heads 270 degrees and effortlessly keep their nose above water when swimming. Okay. Number six, it takes sloths 30 days to digest one leaf. Sloths have the slowest metabolic rate of any mammal, which means that it takes them a long time to digest anything. They have an incredibly large and permanently full four-chambered stomach, which can account for up to 30% of their body mass. In two-fingered sloths, (laughs) I don't know what the thing about the fingers is, this oversized stomach uh, is supported by 46 ribs, which is more than any other mammal. Number seven, they can starve to death on a full stomach. Unlike most mammals, sloths have sacrificed the ability to control their body temperature in order to save energy. Instead, they're completely reliant on the environmental conditions and their core temperature can fluctuate over 10 degrees during the course of a single day. If they get too cold, the special microbes that live in their stomachs can die and the sloths can no longer digest the leaves that it eats. Number eight, we're nearly there. Sloths can fall 100 feet without injury. Sloths are anatomically designed to fall out of trees. <laughs> Not when they die, though. Apparently, that's when they hold on. On average, a sloth will fall out of a tree once a week for its entire life. <laughs> Time to fall out. Um, but don't worry. All sloths are anatomically designed to fall and survive. They can plummet from over 100 feet without injury. When two sloths fight, it is typically over access to a female or mating, and the aim of a sloth fight is to knock your opponent out of the tree. Sounds like gladiators. Okay, number nine. They could potentially hold the cure for cancer. Well, why are we not researching this? Sloths have an unusual method of camouflage. Cracks in their hair allow many different species of algae and fungi to grow, which makes them appear green. Some species of fungi living in sloth fur have been found to be active against certain strains of bacteria, cancer and parasites. Sloth hair also provides home to an entire ecosystem of invertebrates, some species of which are found nowhere else on the earth, like the sloth moth. 
A single sloth can host up to 950 moths and beetles within its fur at once. That's gross. <laughs> I wonder if they're itchy. <laughs> okay, the last one. No one knows how long they live for. Because sloths are so difficult to study in the wild, no one has ever followed an individual from birth until death and it is virtually impossible to accurately determine the age of an adult sloth. All we have to go on is that the lifespan in captivity, uh, but sloths do not do well outside of their natural environment. So the oldest known sloth in the world just turned 50 years old and she lives at a zoo in Germany. So we suspect that wild sloths actually live for much longer than that. Hmm. Well, there you go. Some interesting facts about an animal that is a little mysterious, a little bit weird, and apparently a little bit cute and is now quite famous with kids um, and they like them on their T-shirts and bags and stuff, which is weird. But to be honest, if we had to explain what we knew about sloths before all of that, I think the best we could probably come up with would be that they're slow, they sleep a lot, and basically seem a little bit on the lazy side. I guess that's why we tend to use sloths as an example when we say we feel like having a lazy day. Some say, I spent the day slothing on the couch, or is that just me? You might wonder why I'm talking about sloths this morning, and hopefully later it will all make sense, but... Now we're going to read our scripture for this morning and we're going to be reading it from Matthew 25 verses 14 to 30 and it's called the parable of the bags of gold. Again it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once to put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, but I put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. So here we are, another parable told by Jesus. 
Interestingly, Jesus told this parable during the last few days of his life. Earlier, he had made the decision to leave the safety of the country town of Galilee and head into the city centre of Jerusalem. This is where all the religious authorities were going to be able to watch Jesus every move. Technically, he was walking into the lion's den. So in this parable, Jesus talks about a man or master who is going away on a journey and he calls three of his servants and distributes his wealth to them, five to one, two to another and one to the last servant according to their abilities. And then off he went. Then we read about the first two servants who put all their money to work and managed to double their wealth, while the third servant went and buried his money in the ground. Interesting. After a long time, the master returns, checks in with the servants and finds that the first two servants have doubled their wealth. The master is absolutely thrilled with these servants who took a risk and came through with double. He calls them good and faithful servants. Then he puts them in charge of many things, gives them more responsibilities and opens up a world to them to share in his happiness. But then the third servant comes to the master and shows that he still has just the amount that the master gave him in the first place. Then he gives this explanation of how he knew that the master was a bit of a risk taker in the way he ran his business. So he took the safe road and buried his money so that he wouldn't lose anything. But the master was not impressed, so much so that he called the servant wicked and lazy. He then questioned him, suggesting that if he didn't want to believe in the harvest, why did he not deposit the money in the bank so that it would have at least received some interest? Then as a final move, the master took the bag of gold from the third servant and gave it to the first servant who already had 10 bags and he was left with none. Jesus finishes the parable by saying, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, Jesus wasn't mucking around with this one, was he? I assume if he was getting to the pointy end of, his bef of just before his end days on earth, he kind of needed to go all in. He didn't need to sort of mess with his words. So what was Jesus talking about in this parable? Let's replace these characters with who Jesus really might have been talking about. Let's say that the master is actually Jesus and the servants are actually his disciples or these days the church or you and me. Jesus came and worked in the world to reconcile us with God. He prepared the ground, he planted the seed, he reaped harvest he made disciples, he shared the good news and he gave us everything we needed to continue his work after he was gone. Then he left the earth in the most horrific way, the ultimate sacrifice so that we may be free and washed clean to enter into eternity with him. So let's say that the three servants represent us and the way that God gives us his wealth of good news, Jesus and the Holy Spirit to carry on. What the servants did with the master's wealth is a little bit like what we do as Christ followers. We either do something with it and get good results or we bury it in a hole and achieve nothing. So this morning I want to highlight three points to you now that we've got some understanding of the parable. And the first point is that God is the ultimate generous giver. 
In other scripture versions, this parable is also known as the parable of the talents, which is often used as an example for talking about our spiritual gifts and talents. But in Greek tradition, a talent was a measurement of weight, often used for different forms of wealth, from gold to silver and other precious items. There are some varied understandings of exactly what a talent measurement was worth, but one example is that one talent was roughly worth about 20 years of a day labourer's wage. That's a lot. This could mean that essentially the master handed out the equivalent of 160 years' wages. That's some significant gifting. In this day and age, 160 years of a minimum income in Australia at about $45,000 is $7,200,000 that he potentially, that's the weight of what he gave to these three servants. But this shouldn't really surprise us. We know that our God is a generous God, don't we? He created the heavens and the earth. He populated it with flora and fauna and animals. And then he created us, man and woman, in his own image so that we could enjoy his creation in communion with him. Then if that wasn't enough, he mourned our wicked ways and sent his one and only son to become human flesh so that we could be saved and spend eternity with him. So when we think about the generosity of the master in this story, his incredible generosity came from a place of wanting to share his riches with his servants. Not only was he generous with his servants, but he also knew his servants well. You will recognise that in the amounts of wealth he gave to them, he knew what they could handle. Five bags to the first servant, because the master knew that he was ready to take a risk and do something amazing in a big way. Two bags to the second servant, because he knew he was also ready, but perhaps not quite to the same capacity as the first servant. But the different capacity in this second servant, achieved an equally amazing return. And one bag to the third servant. The master knew this servant too, one who had probably worked for him for many years, maybe the same years, if not more than the others. But God doesn't give us more than we can handle, right? But he also won't give us an abundance of his riches if we're not going to do anything with it. But he still wants us to have something. So the invitation is always open. So one bag was the test, but... It didn't go so well. The second point is it starts with the heart. It's important for me to stress that this is not one of those messages where the church leader tells you, you all need to take up more jobs and tasks in the church. We love those ones, don't we? (laughs) But that would be lovely, but I want to take a step back and say that participation in the church and universal participation of spreading good news is something that shouldn't just happen before the heart stuff is in full swing. I would say that it starts with working on our own personal relationship with God. This parable is not just about wealth or talents so much as it is about living. It's about investing, about taking risks and about faith. In fact, if we start with the heart, the giftings will reveal themselves. The generosity begins to flow and we find ourselves transforming in every way. This parable is about Jesus and what he did on earth what he was about to endure at the cross and what he hopes and expects of the people after he's gone. So for us today, this story is about being a follower of Jesus, being faithful to him and stepping out in that faith to continue his work. And the third point this morning is a God risk is always worth it. 
The master and the first two servants all took risks, didn't they? But it turns out that the greatest risk of all was potentially taken by the third servant because the greatest risk of all is not risking anything, not to share deeply enough about anything to invest deeply. The greatest risk of all is to play it safe, to live cautiously and to give in to pride or fear. This kind of risk is actually one of the seven deadly sins, the sloth. Sloth means not caring, not loving, not rejoicing, not living up to the full potential of our individual and collective humanity, playing it safe, investing nothing, being cautious, afraid, indifferent, digging a hole and burying the money in the ground. The result of this for the third servant was his master calling him wicked and lazy, even with his best intentions. He had this one bag of gold taken from him and given to the first servant who already had 10. I guess the result for us is the same. If we choose to be a sloth, then we risk having eternity stripped from us, left as worthless servants out into the darkness. But a God risk is different. A God risk sees us investing in him. It is a laying down of earthly self, and a full trust in our creator. It's faith, right? For some of us, we may not have thought of our faith as a high-risk venture. In fact, it can at times feel like quite the opposite. Maybe it feels like our personal comfort zone or even a safe investment. But the transition from safety to a God risk is all in our personal faith journey. Safety is us believing in our heads about God and Jesus and a list of beliefs to which we subscribe to. But faith can often be what we are taught by others, settling on a theology that feels right in our own heads and then attempting to live a good life from then on, which generally looks like avoiding the bad things. In a way, it just sounds restrictive and a whole lot of not fun. But Jesus asks us to take a God risk. He asks us to be his disciples, to live our lives as fully as possible by investing in them, by risking our earthly comforts, by expanding our horizons and our responsibilities. He wants us to sink into the word. He wants us to wrestle with our personal theologies for the rest of our human lives as we evolve and stretch and grow. He wants us to learn more about who we are in his eyes and work from the outpouring of that. A God risk is always worth it. This year, Aaron and I have committed more fully to reading the word, not through devotionals that talk about scripture, but just reading the word for what it is. I'm doing a chronological read the Bible in a year program, and each evening we spend about or up to an hour in a silent house reading scripture. It can sometimes feel like a bit of a risk because there are definitely other things we could be doing. There are always things on the to-do list. We could be relaxing too because life is so crazy. We could be doing all sorts of things rather than concentrating, reading. We could be spending quality time with our family or getting things done. But even on the nights when I'm reading through another chapter of family lineage or kings defeating nations or people suffering through wilderness experience, I know that God is doing a work in me. Simply being in the presence of God by immersing myself in his word is changing me. 
It's incredible too how God speaks through scripture at just the perfect time for my current situation. I know I've repeated myself about this many times, but it's because I want it for you too. God wants us to build on what he has given us, to live a life of purpose, abundance and good news. Because the master's going to return. Jesus is coming. We don't want to just look busy. We want to be ready with our harvest. We don't want to be servant number three. Don't be a sloth, given riches and presenting nothing more upon the master's return because we thought that was the safe choice. God created us for more than that. So we need to wake up. We need to awaken our souls and worship him. Worship looks like silent rooms reading scripture. Worship looks like two or more gathered in prayer or sharing good news. Worship looks like discovering and using gifts and talents for the glory of God. Worship looks like sacrificial tithing to the church. Worship looks like loving others even when we don't want to. And the list can go on and on. When we worship, we know God is present. We know the spirit works through us and our transformation becomes apparent both individually and as a church community. We know that when we worship, the things of the world strip away because we can't help but be in the presence of God and wherever God is, the enemy can't stay. So I just want to encourage you today to reflect as we listen to a song. Which servant are you going to be when the master returns?